Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. What up? Hey, it's me. What's happening? I have rapid fire 30 year old sports trivia questions for you. Oh boy. All right. Okay. 30 years ago this week was the NBA All-Star Game. Do you know which All-Star Game that was? 25 or 30? It was 41st. Do you know where it happened? That would have been in 91. So maybe Detroit? Nope. Charlotte, North Carolina. Do you remember who won? (laughs) The East Coast? East beats West, 116 to 114. Well done. Do you know who the MVP was? Oh, man. I mean, everything Emmy says, Jordan. Charles Barkley. Okay. Do you know who won the dunk contest? In 91? 1991, who won the dunk contest? Let me think for a second. 91. Would that be D. Brown, pump up shoes? I knew you would be able to know that it was D. Brown. <laughs> the no CD dunk where he covered his face. Yeah. 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 Other than Spud, he was the first small guy that I remember winning it. Yeah, six one. Small being relative. I mean, he's six one, six two, but yeah. So he towers over you. He's short for me, but. <laughs> sure. All right, man. I'm gonna start the right. episode. We'll see you. Cool. Have a good one. Later. From No You Media Group, this is Thirty Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from thirty years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 7, Hannibal, Clarice, and a Career-Killing Comedy. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, February 16th, 1991. Hello, friends, and welcome to a jam-packed episode of 30 Pop. This is about as full a week as we've ever had to look back on, and I can't wait to get into it. But first, I do want to thank you for joining me here once again. You make this show worth producing. Don't get me wrong, I am ever increasingly obsessed with the research I get to do week in and week out looking back at all this pop culture gold from our past. But regardless, it's highly unlikely that I'd spend remotely this much time and energy on it, but for you. So, thank you. Now let's get to it. The celebrity headlines this week in 1991 belong to 29-year-old rom-com queen Meg Ryan, who celebrated Valentine's Day by marrying her 37-year-old sweetheart, Houston native Dennis Quaid, a marriage that would end about 10 years later, along with, unfortunately for all intents and purposes, Meg's acting career. The couple's relationship drama garnered enough media attention to more than overshadow Meg's career and essentially burn her out on the whole of Hollywood. She's done a few TV movies and guest spots on The Simpsons and Curb Your Enthusiasm over the course of the last 15 to 18 years, but nothing notable or consistent. But thankfully, we're getting into the best years of her career on 30 Pop, so we'll get to continue enjoying her girl-next-door comedic greatness for years to come. In music news this week, the next-to-final week of Vanilla Ice's reign at the top of the Billboard 200 chart, thanks be to God, we had very little movement in our various number one spots. CNC Music Factory had the number one song in the country for the second of two weeks with Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now. 
EPMD had the number one rap song for the second of three weeks, somehow, with Gold Digger. And Mark Chestnut had the top country song for the second and final week with Brother Jukebox. The only change we saw at number one was on the hot R&B and hip-hop chart, where in Vogue's You Don't Have to Worry was replaced by Keith Sweat's I'll Give All My Love to You, a song that just drips with Sweat's signature nasally soulfulness and a music video that highlights his impressive knowledge of music theory, his incredible collection of jackets, and his uncanny ability to make use of both microphones and vintage telephones that are plugged into nothing at all. It's linked in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check it out. Also, for the record, I immediately realized that it was a mistake to use the verb drips in reference to Sweat's nasally soulfulness, but I thought it was funny, so I kept it. More importantly, in the music world this week in 1991, we had two incredible debut albums release. Okay, maybe the first one isn't technically incredible, but you'd have had a hard time convincing my 11-year-old self of that. The February 11th debut for Motown Hip Hop Quintet, Another Bad Creation, entitled Coolin' at the Playground, you know, which quickly went platinum largely off the success of its lead single, Aisha. Was it child exploitation? Maybe. Okay, yes, probably. But did I love it? Absolutely. So much. This was the second major album release from Belle Biv DeVoe's Michael Bivens, formerly and currently of R&B boy band New Edition, for his then-new artist management and development company, Biv Entertainment, which eventually morphed into Biv 10 Records, an imprint of Motown. We'll have lots more to talk about from Biv Entertainment over the next couple months. The very next day, on February 12th, 1991, the also eventually platinum-selling self-titled debut album from singer-songwriter Mark Cohn released, with its career-defining killer lead single, Walking in Memphis. Then I'm walking in Memphis Just walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis But do you really feel the way I feel? Walking in Memphis I was walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis But do you really feel the way I feel? If you've never read the story of how that song came to be, I recommend it. In short, Cohn was a 28-year-old Jewish New York singer-songwriter and session vocalist struggling to find a record deal and the inspiration to write any songs he really loved. Following the lead of one of his major influences, James Taylor, he took a trip somewhere he'd never been. Memphis, obviously, and it wound up being a life-changing spiritual awakening of sorts. One that caused him to pen his now signature song. So good. In Hollywood 30 years ago this week, we saw the release of several new movies, although admittedly they were basically all completely overshadowed by the new top film at the box office, which we'll get to momentarily. First up was the Charlie Sheen and Lawrence Fishburne film, Cadence, directed by and also starring Martin Sheen. In the depths of his despair. I'm a free man! No! I'm... In the cut.
custody of his superiors. If there's one thing I know for sure, it's that we all choose sides eventually. Watch yourself in there, man. In the hands of his fellow inmates. And how do we like our new roommates, Mr. Bean? I like them fine. Bean! Let the record show I tried to stop this! How do we like our new roommates now, Mr. Bean? He took a stand. Why are you protecting these people? You think they do the same for you? You better look in the mirror, mister. Forged a friendship. Welcome to the ghetto, sir. There goes the neighborhood. And found redemption. You are fighting for Bean every day in every way. You're a bully, and I hate everything you stand for. Don't you know that's the sound of the men working on the chain? Charlie Sheen. I'm no different from those guys. Me and them were the same. Martin Sheen. So you've chosen a team after all, huh? You chose the wrong one. And Lawrence Fishburne. Never ask a man what he's done. You ask him what he's convicted of. You ask him what he's accused of. But never what he's done. Cadence. I know nothing about this movie except that it was a box office flop, barely making back half of its already low $4 million budget, that it was not particularly well received and isn't very highly rated on most web aggregates, but also that, despite those things, 99% of the reviews I found online praised this movie as being a very well-acted, well-directed, highly realistic look at the military experience. Very underrated by all accounts, so who knows? Maybe you check it out. Next up was an even bigger flop, star-studded as it may have been. The first and last film directed by comedy legend Dan Aykroyd, Nothing But Trouble. This was a mess from start to finish. In fact, the only reason Aykroyd ended up directing at all is because the script, written by his brother, Peter Aykroyd, was shot down by every other director to whom it was pitched. Ivan Reitman, John Hughes, John Landis, nobody wanted to touch it. The word grotesque was pretty commonly used in the reviews I read, almost all of which were deservingly harsh. This film has, for years, held a 5% rating on RottenTomatoes.com and has only recently jumped to 13% because the last two reviews, both from February of 2021, weren't entirely negative. Although I can't imagine that they represent a turning of the tide with regard to public sentiment for this massive flop. Production reportedly went $5 million over its estimated $40 million budget, and to date has grossed a total of only $8.5 million worldwide. Aykroyd never directed again, and many of the film's stars never chose to act together again, and honestly never had another truly successful project. This was that bad. The only redeeming piece of trivia for this movie, at least for me, is that it was the film debut of rap icon Tupac Shakur, who appeared alongside his then-groupmates Digital Underground in one unforgettable but no less ridiculous scene, which I've also linked in the show notes. The third film to be overshadowed by this week's box office breakout was a bit more successful commercially, even if not critically. The first feature film with John Goodman in its top billing, King Ralph. The rain appears to have stopped, Your Majesty. We shall be able to continue with the portrait. So I should hope, Albert. First time we've had the whole family together here for six years. (laughs) Right, we're ready now, everybody. Now, after three... One, two, three. Oh, dear. Now, 
a new king must be found. Excuse me, Sir Cedric. Yes? I do believe we've found an heir. Is he everything we might have hoped? Allow me to introduce our sovereign lord, Ralph Jones, king of Great Britain, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. John Goodman is everybody having a good time. Is King Ralph? Good God, Miss Molly. Where did they find this man? John Goodman. Peter O'Toole. He's uncouth. He's unkempt. He's the king. King Ralph. I loved Roseanne back in those days and thought John Goodman was hilarious as Dan Connor. And this movie looked very funny to me as an 11-year-old. Today, not so much. I actually tried to finally watch this once or twice over the last couple weeks and couldn't make it past the first few minutes. It's just about as corny as it can be. Unlike the movie that topped the box office for this in the next four weeks. Jodie Foster and Sir Anthony Hopkins in the incredible but creepy thriller The Silence of the Lambs. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're going to catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? I didn't see this movie until I was well into adulthood, but I do love it. Even while violence and gore and creepiness aren't usually my thing exactly, this is just a really well-made film. I had the great privilege this past week of hopping on a call with my friend, voiceover artist Charles The Voice Coates, to talk about it. Here's our conversation. Charles The Voice, welcome back to 30 Pop. So good to have you on. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Man, so we're about the same age. At what point in your life did you see Silence of the Lambs for the first time? I want to say I was probably like 12. You're kidding 12 me. or 13. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there were no rules in your house. There was, but when it came to movies, I don't know if it was just because my dad was such a movie buff or maybe because he was younger and thought it was cool. When it came to movies, the rules were we pretty much got to see just about everything. That is wild. So what were you thinking as a 12 or 13-year-old kid seeing this twisted movie for the first time? There was some parts in there that, you know, of course, I didn't understand. And actually, now that I think about it, it was 
like a growing up moment. Like, wow, this could happen. This is, I think this is based on a true story or something like mm. there's people like this out there. And that's insane to me mm-hmm. that like it goes this deep and dark, you know, I heard a fun fact about this and I haven't done anything to verify if it's true or not. I'm sure it is. But my, my mom was telling me that at the time when this movie came out, Sir Anthony Hopkins was in a romantic relationship with Martha Stewart, which I think is hilarious by itself, but that when she saw this movie, she ended it. She couldn't be with him once she saw him as Dr. Hannibal Lecter, which is just one of the, (laughs) I mean, truly the creepiest characters. I don't know who's more creepy in this movie, if it's Hannibal Lecter or Buffalo Bill, but I rewatched it a couple days ago and I made the mistake of like staying up really late and watching it, like as I was going to bed and gosh, I mean, it is just so messed up, but it's so good. I mean, Jodie Foster is incredible. Anthony Hopkins is incredible. How he possibly could have even imagined that version, that Hannibal Lecter. I just, I can't imagine anybody playing it better than he did. Yeah. I was reading up a little bit on him and he was originally supposed to be in an orange jumpsuit. And he said, I want the character to be in a white t-shirt the (laughs) whole time. I want to wear white because he wanted to keep it kind of clinical, Mm -hmm. like, and prey on people's fears of like the dentists and the doctors and stuff. And also gives them that you know, connotation that, you know, like he's a doctor, mm-hmm. right? He's got that skill and precision. And if he wants, he can do what he wants to do. Yeah. Well, so, and if he's yeah, going to get it, blood all over himself too, that's going to be a, a much more resonant image on white, blood mm-hmm. on white than on orange. But yeah, man, so you're 12 or 13 when you saw it, were you seeing other movies like this at the time? Like, was this particularly dark or was this kind of like par for the course for you? I would say that this one was up there. I mean, you know, when it, <laughs> You have Nightmare on Elm Street and, and right. those kind of horror movies, but this one was like believable. Like I said, it was that one that were like, "Wow, this is some real stuff." This isn't Freddy chasing you in your dreams. This yeah. is like this is a man making a is, skin suit out of yeah, human yeah. beings. I mean, it's you know, I remember yeah. the first time. I, I mean, I was probably at least in my twenties, maybe my thirties when I saw this for the first time because I, like I've said, I just I grew up in a world where you could never watch. I there's no way I would have ever been able to watch this when I was a kid, but. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful for that, actually, because I think this would have terrorized me. I used to get scared at Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So, like, to see Hannibal Lecter, you know, large large Marge to Hannibal Lecter, there's kind of a jump there. The claymation face versus the, like, wearing someone else's face as a mask. I mean, I, just, right, right. I don't think I could have handled it. but And I can barely handle it now. I mean, it's – even when I watched it a couple of days ago, when I when I see that scene of him pulling – the other man's face off, you know, as a mask off of his face. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's awful. I don't know if it's because I'm weird and twisted, but when I saw that part, I was like, this guy's a genius. Like, I was like, how is he going to get out of there? There's no way. And I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is just a genius. Like he's a mastermind. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's the part that kind of took my stance on it. It was, I know he's a bad guy. He did some bad stuff. He kind of wants to help this girl. And like, that's that kind of paradox, I guess. I don't know what you would call it, but when the bad guy, you kind of start feeling for him in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, Which is is such a staple in entertainment now, but you're right. I mean, he's messed up and you, you don't want him to win over Clarice Starling, Mm -hmm. but you kind of do like to see him, you know, the movie ends, hopefully everyone who cares to see it has seen it, but it ends with him in, in Haiti or Jamaica or somewhere following, mm-hmm. you know, this other prison psychiatrist. But you kind of <laughs> you kind of root for him. Like he's – it's disgusting to kind of find that within yourself. But 
you end up hating that other doctor more than you hate him. Yeah. His cleverness is endearing despite his sort of demented mind, you know? Yeah. That's a really good way to put it, you know? And because like the characters in there, you know, you said, I don't know who's worse, Buffalo Bill or Anthony Hopkins. And I almost kind of feel bad for Buffalo Bill because he obviously has a lot of things not aligning in his brain. Right. Mm -hmm. So one side there's this like, man, I want this guy to get help. But on the other hand, it's like, you are kidnapping. Oh, okay. So that part, it just made me think of it when he tricks that girl into getting into the van, when he mm-hmm. puts that cast on his arm and he's like trying to lift that mm-hmm. chair or whatever into the van. And he's like, I felt angry because I was like, dude, she was trying to help you. Mm-hmm. Like she was doing something nice for you. And then he, now it's like, Oh, he's this really bad guy. And then like, you hate him. You don't like him starting from that point. But as you go through it, like shows him and he's, you know, <laughs> sewing uh, and doing other stuff. And there's just this weird part of me that's like, man, I think this could have been a good person. But because of his mind and his situation and him taking action on those crazy things that he thought that he needed to do, you know, it was like, man, like it's got power over you, you know, and it's like, man, you, it's. You could have been all right, but mm-hmm. you know, just let her go. Just change your ways all of a sudden, and then it'll be all okay. But Well, and it's yeah. also such a commentary on, and this only kind of jumped out at me this week. You know, we live in a world now where, like, transsexuality is an accepted part of, it's within the realm of social norms. And mm-hmm. that's really the thing about this movie. I mean, the whole premise is that because this person who feels different than their body allows them to be in society. And there were only three places at the time that, you know, he could have this transition surgery or operation, whatever. And he was denied all of those places because of his own mental illness. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what it sort of evolved into was this horrific string of crimes, but it's really rooted in his own lack of acceptance in society, his own inability to be accepted in society, which I mean, yep. that's a crazy, and I'm sure, I don't know that that's what anybody was shooting for when they made the movie, but it is sure. interesting to watch it in 2021 in a world where that's not hopefully the way society would respond to a person. But anyway, I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that because you notice the part when I think he's at a store or, you know, he's as normal Buffalo Bills, his normal self. Mm-hmm. And you can tell he feels awkward being that character. Mm-hmm. Like he feels awkward being in that body mm-hmm. out in public around, you know, people. But then when he's, you know, starting to dress up and, and do other things mm-hmm. uh, that you can tell he becomes more comfortable with himself. So, I mean, it's like you said, maybe that's not what they intended, but there was a lot of great stuff in this movie. Yeah. Well, and intended or not, it holds up to me for that reason. Like as a commentary on the sort of mistreatment of especially the queer community, the especially, especially the trans community, mm-hmm. it's really easy when you watch the movie to recognize, and it would have been easy even 30 years ago to recognize the way that he has to remove humanity from his victims so that he can mm-hmm. do what he has to do or what he's doing. Yeah. For example, the whole, it puts the lotion on, it puts the lotion on that, you know, always referring to the victim as with, you know, no personal pronoun whatsoever. It's always it. Mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And, and he's doing that to sort of remove her humanity, which I think is exactly the commentary that's being made 
intentional or not on yeah. uh, the treatment of trans people. This is not the conversation I expected you and I'd be having. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither, but this is supposed to be like a light, lighthearted show. But um, <laughs> anyway, the movie, I mean, swept the Oscars in '92, which we'll get into next year. But I mean, best picture, best director, best actor and actress, best adapted screenplay, and then it was nominated for best sound and best film editing. I mean, it, and so it won five out of seven awards. It's just incredible one at the golden globes one at the british academy awards i mean it's just it's an incredible film as dark and as twisted as it is it is an incredible film and it does hold up for sure and i think i read something that said anthony hopkins basically won that award for 18 minutes of total screen time wow like, is that all he's on wow, that blows my mind. Yeah. yeah but i mean who else like i mean there are some great movies in 91 some really nostalgic movies in 91 but there was nothing like this i mean Oh, it yeah. really is just a whole nother level. Yeah, this kind of was like the earth shaker. Every, it, like everybody that saw it would tell everybody about it and be like, this movie's nuts. Like yeah. it's so real, it's so intense, it's so deep. And, you know, the original casting for it. So originally, Anthony Hopkins was the backup. It was supposed to be Sean Connery. Oh, wow. I'm so glad it wasn't Sean Connery. And that would have ruined down Sean Connery for me. Yeah. And it's crazy how, like, amazing things happen kind of on accident, Mm -hmm. you know, just like half the inventions in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think like if the events didn't play out the way they did and it wasn't, the people weren't cast the way they were and who they were, it wouldn't have been the movie that it is. I couldn't even imagine anybody else in those roles. And And I tell you, all that would do is one, it would make this a lesser movie. And this is not to take anything away from Sean Connery. Sean Connery is a genius. He's wonderful. Yeah. That being said, he did, he is not Anthony Hopkins. He doesn't have any, I, I like Sean Connery better. Anthony Hopkins is one of the best actors, I think, in the history of the world. I actually think the the same thing about Jodie Foster. I think Jodie Foster is brilliant. Oh, yeah. But all that would have done for me is make me not like this movie as much and not like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as much. It would have ruined uh, the, you know, Henry Jones for me. Yeah. Which would have been tragic. Yeah. Anyway, it's an incredible movie. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. Look forward to having you back yeah. on very soon to talk more pop culture stuff. Excellent, Luke. I'm always down, my friend. Thanks for the opportunity to hang out. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you next time, Charles. Okay. Take it easy. I'm amazed every time we talk at the things he was allowed to watch as a kid. Huge thanks to Charles for setting some time aside to be a part of this episode. And as always, huge thanks to you for listening. I will not be back next week as I'm taking a week off to get caught up in the rest of my life. But I will be back the following week with double the pop culture nostalgia as we cover two weeks in a single episode. Hope you'll join me. That's it for now, friends. Do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 